Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, now as we give attention to your word, we pray your blessing. We pray your guidance. And we pray that your spirit would be active as we seek to understand that which Luke has written for our benefit. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Never judge a book by its cover. We've all heard this proverb, and we've all completely ignored it. It's actually pretty easy, isn't it, to judge a book by its cover. 55% of communication, we are told, is non-verbal. The way a person dresses, the way they carry themselves, and then when they speak, their accent and their grammar lend themselves to having others reach certain conclusions about them. We judge books by their covers because it's easy to do so. Our text for this morning is rife with this kind of judgment. Jesus is invited to the home of a Pharisee, and over the course of the evening meal, the judgment flows fast and furious, but not Jesus. Jesus has a very different agenda, and Jesus has a very different mission. The mission is captured for us in the big idea that's found on page five in your bulletin this morning. It's this. Jesus came to save and to forgive, not to reinforce categorical stereotypes. 
Jesus came to save and forgive, not to reinforce categorical stereotypes. Three points we would want to make this morning. The first one, and by the way, they're all uh, phrased in the form of a question. So here's the first question we want to explore together. What's going on here? What's going on here? This story sounds very strange to us. After all, who in the world lets a notorious woman into their dining room to crawl under the table and behave in the way in which this woman behaves when you're hosting the very Son of God in your home for a fancy dinner? It sounds fanciful at best. At worst, it sounds like Luke is just making this up, that this entire story is a figment of his imagination. And so if we don't do the work of understanding what's actually going on, and if we don't understand culturally and within that society what's actually happening, it's stories like this that can lend people to doubt the truthfulness of the Bible. Because we sit here and go, listen, nobody in their right mind is going to let this kind of notorious woman into the dining room during dinner and then let her behave in the way in which she has behaved. This, this story simply could not have happened. And yet we need to understand this morning that hosting a dinner in Jesus' day was not the same as hosting a dinner in our own. See, this was not an event that happened in someone's dining room. This is not something that happened in the dine-in kitchen. In Jesus' day and time, if it was a wealthy individual, and we have reason to believe that the Pharisee was someone who was fairly notable within that particular culture. What would have happened is the kitchen was its own building. It was a separate building because the fire was there. It got hot. It was uncomfortable. And so the kitchen would have been separate from the rest of the living structure. And when you had a meal like this, there would have been a covered portico between the house and between the kitchen, and there would be a table set up. And it wouldn't be like the kind of table that we would have. It wasn't like, Oh, great, we're dining al fresco. Let's bring the garden furniture out. Uh, no, this is a table that would have been about knee high or shin high. And then around the table in the courtyard, under the covered portico, there would have been big cushions that would have been set out. And every guest, when they came, they would have been greeted by their host. Their feet would have been washed because, remember now, these are dirt roads and there are animals and so between dirt and animals, feet get funky. And so there would have been a servant there to wash their feet. And again, because it's dusty and it's hot, there would have been someone there. Their hands would have been washed. Uh, they could wash their face if they wanted to. And then their head would have been anointed with oil. And why they would do that, it was a sign of honor. But it was also for a practical reason, as we're going to see when we talk about the posture that they took when they ate. You see, those cushions were there, not so that they could sit Indian style, but rather the cushions were there because if this was the table, you would get on your cushion and you would kind of lie on your side with your feet behind you and you would prop yourself up on your left arm. You would never use your right arm, even if you were left-handed, because the left hand was sort of the ignoble hand. You did things with your left hand that meant you wouldn't want them around food. The right hand, though, is the hand with which you ate. It's the hand with which you would shake someone's hand. It's the noble hand. 
And so you would come, you would kind of drop down to your knees, and you would kind of plop down, you would lean up on your left hand, and the table would be in front of you, and you would eat using your right hand, and you would talk, and you would all, as the text says, you would recline at the table. Now, it was not uncommon for folks who were passing by, if there was some sort of great feast to come and to show up, they would sit, they would stand, and they would just listen to the conversation. If there was food left over and the person throwing the particular dinner or the feast, if they were generous enough, there's food that would be shared. And since there was never enough food to go around, the opportunity to then get the leftovers was something that most people simply could not pass up. If there's a chance to eat and you haven't eaten all day, you're going to go. And you're going to stand and listen to the conversation and you're going to be a fly on the wall and you're just going to be seen, but not heard. So that's what's going on. Jesus has taken his place. He's reclined at the table. They've begun to eat. And as he is reclined and as his feet are behind him, because again, remember, feet are funky. We don't want them near the food. We want them behind us. And as this happens, this woman appears. That brings us to our second point, the second question. What exactly is a disciple? What is a disciple? So in the midst, in the midst of this feast, in the midst of this dinner, a woman shows up. And we're told in verse 37, she's a woman of the city who was a sinner. So in other words, she is notorious. <clears throat> we don't know her name. And we don't know her particular sin, but we do know that she is well-known. Not well-known because she's the first grade teacher at the local school. Not well-known because she makes the best cherry pie you've ever put in your mouth. Not well-known because you know her husband, of course, and her kids. No, she's well-known because she is a sinner. And she shows up for the dinner party in verse 37 was something quite strange. It's an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, typically perfumes or strong kinds of ointments were kept in these kinds of jars, and oftentimes they were used as a kind of savings account. This kind of fragrance was very expensive. You could take it and you could trade it, you could sell it, you could get uh, quite a bit of money for it. And so oftentimes what would happen is that's how a younger woman would receive her dowry. When, when uh, if, if something had happened to her father, if something had happened to her family, she would be given this jar of ointment and it would either serve as her dowry or as she got older and could not work, it would serve as a means by which she could provide for herself. And so here is this woman at Jesus' feet, and we're told in verse 38 that she begins to weep. And she's weeping so much, so profusely, that his feet, which are funky, because as we're going to find out later, they have not been washed. The tears begin to flow, and they drip on Jesus' feet, and she doesn't have anything to wipe them off with. So what she does is she lowers her hair, and she takes her hair, which clearly is long enough to be able to serve as, as some kind of towel to wipe off Jesus' feet. And she does just that for him. 
And what we want to uh, pay attention to is what comes in verse 39. Verse 39, we have the conjunction now. Why does, uh, why is it that Luke uses that particular, it's not just because the action is happening fast and furious and this is the thing that comes next. No, Luke wants to make sure, for those who aren't a part of this culture, he wants to make sure that we understand how scandalous this is. This woman has not said a word, and yet her actions are absolutely scandalous. It's right by her actions that she is somewhat notorious. You see, for a woman to let down her hair, was absolutely taboo in Jewish culture. Theirs was a shame and honor culture, and a woman's hair was her glory. And so to let down her hair in public, in front of someone who was not her husband, was considered to be a very shameful act because it was a very intimate act. In fact, the Talmud, which was the Jewish commentary on the scripture, uh, held that a man could divorce his wife if another man saw her with her hair down. And then there is this flask of ointment. Her entire future is represented in that flask. It's either the dowry that will help her secure a husband or it's her IRA. But either way, her entire future is right there in that particular flask. And so this woman shows a particular kind of humility. And she shows a particular kind of love. This is an act, yes, it's an act of humility. Yes, according to the cultural mores of the time, it was a shameful act. But this is an act of love. This is a scene that's before us. It's a scene of great intimacy. Not sexual intimacy, but of great intimacy between one who feels loved and wants to show and wants to demonstrate that particular love. See, Luke has shown us so far in his gospel people responding to Jesus in faith. And that's good. We want to respond to Jesus in faith. That's much better than unbelief. But what does it mean to be a disciple? Well, a disciple is someone who doesn't just show, uh, doesn't just act according to their faith or respond in faith. But a disciple is also someone who responds to Jesus in love. A disciple Yes, is a follower of Jesus. A disciple is someone who believes in Jesus. But a disciple is also someone who is a lover of Jesus. If you've been married very long, you know that there is a great difference uh, in married life between those things. Uh, when, when you get married, or at least when I did, you would hear people say all the time, oh, once you're married, you got to do this. And you got to do this. And you got to do this. Well, there's a great difference between thinking there are things that I have to do as opposed to thinking there are things that I get to do. 
that being Amy's husband means that there are things I get to do for her that no one else gets to do. Being Gabrielle and Nathaniel's dad means there are things that I get to do that no one else does. I had a, a co-worker for a time. I, I spent a season working at the Amazon warehouse in Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, and it was as pathetic as it sounds. And uh, I, I had a car that worked and I had a couple guys in my shift that I got to know who were either taking the bus or they just didn't. And when we got into the busy season where we were working shifts that meant the bus wasn't on time or whatever, I thought, okay, I, here it is. Lord, I don't know why I'm at Amazon, but I am. And I'm going to try to be gracious. And so I would pick guys up and bring them to work. And they were always talking about what they had to do and what they had to do for the old lady and what they had to do for the living girlfriend. And it was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's not the point. The point is not what you have to do. The point of loving someone is look at what I get to do. Look at how I'm able to serve them. I'm able to serve them in a way that no one else can. Or let's put it this way. I'm able to serve them in a way that no one else should. What is a disciple? A disciple is someone who responds to Jesus in love. And so the things that Jesus calls us to, we don't look at them and go, oh, these are things I have to do. No, we look at them and we say, these are things that I get to do. These are things that the one who is the lover of my soul has called me to. I love the, 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 the first line of the hymn that we sang. Jesus, lover of my soul, foul I to thy bosom fly. As we've seen already this morning in our Old Testament reading, other people see what's on the outside, but God himself sees what's in the heart. Friends, Jesus sees what's in your heart. And he loves you anyway. That is mind-blowing. And so being a follower of Jesus isn't about what you have to do. It's not about merely responding in faith. It's not about merely responding in obedience and belief. No, being a disciple is someone who is fundamentally a lover of Jesus. We love him as the old hymn says, because he first loved us. This woman understands it. And she shows her love and her care for her Savior. Thirdly then, salvation and forgiveness are categories and stereotypes. Salvation and forgiveness are categories and stereotypes. This woman hasn't said a word and yet the extravagance does not go unnoticed. The Pharisee, a man named Simon, has watched what is going on. And he's too polite. His mama raised him too well to say anything at a dinner party that he is hosting. And so instead of saying it, he thinks it. We're told then in verse 39, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And then I love how Luke puts it in verse 40. And Jesus answering said to him, he hasn't even said it out loud. 
But Jesus is going to answer him, and he's going to answer him by telling him a story. So in verse 40, Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Jesus does what he normally does. Verse 41, he uses a story. He uses a parable. And he tells the parable of a moneylender who has two men who owe him money. One 500 denarii and the other 50. If you have a study Bible, the study Bible will tell you that 50 denarii is basically a, a week's worth of wages. And so 500 denarii would be, you can do the math. Of these two, the moneylender says to him, calls and says, I'm going to cancel the debt. And so Jesus asked the question in verse 42, now which of them will love him more? Simon gives the only reasonable answer. Well, the one who's going to love him more is the one who had the greater debt. And then in verse 43, after Jesus says, yep, you're right, he then turns to the woman and addresses Simon. Do you see this woman? <laughs> well, she's kind of hard to miss. The woman who's been standing there weeping the entire time, letting her hair down, wiping her feet off, and taking what's basically either her dowry or her IRA and spreading them all over her your feet. Yeah, Jesus, we, <laughs> I, I, I see the woman. She would have been very difficult to miss. Jesus takes command of the entire scene because he wants Simon to see. He wants him to really see. You see, Simon is thinking only in terms of categories. This woman is a sinner. What do you do with sinners? Well, the Old Testament's pretty clear about that. You don't stand in the way of the sinner. You don't sit in the seat of the scoffer. You don't walk in the paths of the unrighteous. In other words, when you see a sinner, you get as far away from them as you possibly can. You don't let a notorious sinner cry tears on your feet, use her hair to wipe them off, uh, and use this expensive ointment to anoint your feet. But one of the things that we've already seen is that Jesus can touch those things that are unclean like dead bodies and not himself become unclean. Jesus gives life. And so this is not a touch that is in some way going to contaminate Jesus. No, this is a touch, this is a contact that's going to result in the forgiveness of the woman. Jesus is not like we are in that sense. For most of us, it's a really good idea to have nothing to do with sinners, or at least not to walk in their path or to sit in their counsel. But Jesus has something more than categories. Jesus uh, understands that this is about a relationship. You see, Simon thinks he's maintaining a particular kind of moral standard. But I love the words of Kent Hughes. Kent says, but in fact, he has an arctic heart. He has permafrost of the soul. His heart is frozen. And all he could offer this woman is condemnation. You are a sinner. What you're doing is completely inappropriate. 
Why are you here? Why is he letting you do that? Now, to be clear, we do need categories. There is such a thing as sinners. There are actions that are good. There are actions that are evil. There are actions that are just. There are actions that are corrupt. There are words that give life, and there are words that should not be uttered. And we need categories as we think about God, as we think about his communicable attributes or his incommunicable attributes. We need the categories that theology gives us. We need to understand words like justification and sanctification. But we also, I think, understand innately that when it comes to a relationship, relationships tend to defy categories. And there's more going on in a relationship then simply this individual fits into these particular categories. And therefore, we can apply these particular kinds of stereotypes. I have a, a very good friend uh, there in Kentucky. We worked together for a season, and we have like the same sense of humor. We have a lot of the same interests. He's a little younger than I am, so kind of like a younger brother. And, and because we'd worked together and we'd actually traveled uh, to Africa together. And so the category you would think of would be, oh, co-worker, right? Friend and co-worker. But it was more than that, and it was more than that. I don't remember if it was Amy first or Gabrielle, but somebody within our household uh, declared that Adam, uh, my friend Adam, was actually my heterosexual male life partner. The relationship transcended categories. Is he a co-worker? Yeah. Is he a friend? Yeah. But we had this weird sort of freakish same sense of humor. Uh, you know, he traveled with a fan. It was kind of high maintenance. Uh, we both married way above ourselves. I mean, we had lots of things in common that transcended just this idea of he's a co-worker and he's a friend. And so somebody within our household joked, and it stuck, Adam is my heterosexual male life partner. Why? Because the categories just don't work. Jesus understands that. See, individuals in relationships need to offer forgiveness. Individuals within relationships need grace. There's a give and take within relationships, while categories tend to be generally hard and fast. And so Jesus makes a declaration in verse 50. Don't miss it. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What has he given her? He's given her forgiveness. He's given her salvation. He has acknowledged that her faith is saving faith. How do we know it? We know it because it's manifested itself in love. Yes, a disciple is someone who has faith, but a disciple is also someone who loves, and so Jesus makes this amazing declaration. Your faith has saved you. Your sins are forgiven. Friends, we need categories. They're good. Without categories, it gets a little murky fast. But we also need relationships. And we need to understand that God did not come to move us 
from one category to another category. But in sending his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world, God came to fundamentally restore a relationship. And the relationship he came to restore was between our creator and ourselves. And Jesus is the one then who restores that relationship. And so are there categories that we can use to describe Jesus? Yes. Does Jesus transcend any and all categories we could use to describe him and understand him? Yes. Why? Because this is not about categories. This is about a particular relationship. When I was uh, in seminary, there was a, a kind of preaching that was all uh, the, in vogue. It was in vogue mainly among people that didn't really believe the Bible anymore, but they wanted to have something to say. And so it was narrative preaching. You would basically tell a story. The story would make a point, and it would be great. And so uh, the guy who was kind of the, the dean of narrative preaching at the time was a gentleman named Fred Craddock. Fred Craddock was from Louisiana originally, so he had this very rich, deep Southern accent. He told great stories. And one of the stories that he liked to tell as it related to this particular parable was about a, a particular church. And the church was the kind of place where uh, if you had it all together and if you dressed the right way and you spoke the right way and you carried the right kind of Bible and you knew the right amount of Bible verses, then you were welcome to come to this church. And then if you believed the right things and you voted for the right people and you didn't do the kinds of things that you weren't supposed to do, like we all know that Christians really shouldn't laugh very loud or very heartily. So if you laughed just enough, but not too much, and you drove the right kind of car and you sent your kids to the right kind of school, or nowadays we would say you didn't send them to public school at all, then you were welcome. Well, over time, there were fewer and fewer people who were welcome, and eventually the church closed. And in its place, there opened a barbecue joint. And it was good barbecue. And it was good barbecue, and there was cold beer. And on any Friday night, you could look out, and the place would be packed with people who were enjoying good barbecue and cold beer. And Fred Craddock said, you know, it was a good thing that was no longer a church, because if it was, those people wouldn't be welcome there. It's not about categories. It's about relationships. This woman is a lover of Jesus. And her faith saves her. Jesus is the one who offers her a restored relationship with God. And he's the one who declares that her sins are forgiven. As we come to the table this morning, we see the extravagant love of God. We are reminded that just as the woman poured out what she had, Christ poured out his very life. And that as Jesus, with his words, says to the woman, your faith has saved you, so the table declares to us God's forgiveness and the salvation that is ours the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you didn't come to give us categories.
that you didn't come to reinforce particular stereotypes, but we bless you that the Lord Jesus Christ came to restore the most important and fundamental relationship that we will ever have, the relationship with our Creator. And so, Father, we pray this morning, we pray that you would forgive us, for we're really good at trying to understand and put people in particular categories. And yet, relationship transcends those kinds of categories. And so we pray that we would be a place where those kind of people are welcome. And we pray that we would be a place that is about proclaiming the forgiveness that is ours for the Lord Jesus Christ and not be the kind of place that's about reinforcing particular stereotypes. For we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.